right? Let's pray. Jesus, uh, as we get ready to open up your word again today, we pray that your spirit, Lord, would just make it come alive, um, Lord, that it would hop off the page this morning in a new way. Uh, and even though we're reading some, some chapters and some verses and, and things, God, that sometimes cause controversy, uh, Lord, we pray uh, today that, that you would give us clarity. You would give us clarity in, as to who you are and who we are. Uh, Lord, you would give us clarity. You would show us what it means to, to live in your sovereignty, Lord, but also have responsibility. Uh, and so, Jesus, we pray today that, that this, this day would be a day where we walk out of this place, uh, Lord, different. And the only reason we're different is we bumped into you. Um, so, Father, we pray that that would happen today. We pray that we just get a chance to encounter you in a new way. Um, so, Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right. So, um, last week we started this kind of three-part sermon. Like I told you, it's like last week, as I tried to figure out how much content I could fit into one of those things, it was really, really difficult. And so had we tried to preach the whole thing, we would be here till like two or three in the afternoon and we'd still have to skip some stuff. So you're welcome, right? We're not doing that. Um, But it is, it's kind of like a trilogy. And if you are a big fan of movies, especially movie trilogies, you know, there's something about the second film in a trilogy, right? They usually end up being one of the best parts, right? So Empire Strikes Back, undeniably the best Star Wars movie. And if you disagree with me, we can fight afterwards, all right? Terminator 2, the best term. Aliens, so much better than the original. And then after that, it fell apart. The Godfather Part 2. I mean, we're talking about the, the, the middle movie in trilogies tends to be some of the most impactful stuff. It tends to be some of the, most, it's, it's some of the, some of the deepest, richest part. Why? Because you don't have to work to figure things out. You've already been introduced to some of the characters. You've already been introduced to what's going on. So you can just kind of let the story unfold in those moments. And that's kind of where we are today. Like I said last week, when we dig into Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is where we are, there's so much to unpack. So last week, this week, and next week are really just kind of a trilogy. It's part one, part two, and part three on just us learning what it means to live under and with God who is sovereign. And what sovereignty is all about. And it's too much to cram into one Sunday, right? And so, you know, here's the thing. We are going to make a trilogy out of this. And today is kind of the middle part. This is the Empire Strikes Back part of this sermon, right? It has nothing to do with Darth Vader. And I promise you the good guys win. Okay, so now let me do a quick recap, right? So that we can just kind of let this story unfold in front of us. I'm going to go super fast. I've had like three cups of coffee this morning. So... Here we go, right? Um, We asked a really, really tough, like, gut punch question last week to kick this off. And here's the question. So if you weren't here last week, this matters. Think about this. What's your attitude and level of care and concern for people who are trying to go through life without Jesus? What's your attitude? What's your attitude towards these people? And what is your level of care and concern for people that are going through life without Jesus? These are the people that Jesus would call lost. And he said, he explained, my mission, the reason that I stepped out of heaven into earth, the reason that I stepped into this mess, right, was to seek and save those who are lost. And typically what we talked about last week is our attitudes and our level of care and concern for people who are lost typically play out in three different ways. Option one was just to kind of wash our hands of all this, right? It's just kind of like, you know what, they're lost, not my problem, not my fault. You know, it's like, I, I'm, I'm glad I'm not. Too bad they are. So yeah, I don't, I'm not really sure what to do with this. So we just kind of wash our hands of the whole thing. It's like, I don't really know how to engage it. I don't really know what to do. I know I'm good. So it stinks for them. They're not. But that's kind of my approach to people that are lost. I just kind of wash my hands of the whole deal. The second option was heartbreak, right? Our hearts break for the fact that these people are going to miss out on not only living life with Jesus now, 
right? But this eternal life with Jesus that lasts forever, right? So they're missing out on the with God life, which we've said is a better way to live. And eternal life doesn't start when we die. It starts the moment we say yes to Jesus and begin to step into this with God life that just looks different, that's just built different. And so our hearts break for people that are trying to go through life without Jesus. And then the third one, which is where most of us land, is kind of indifference. You know, it's different than hand washing because it's like, look, I want to do something. I'm just not sure what to do. Right? I, I would love to have some conversations with my friends or my family members that don't know Jesus, but I'm not really sure what to say. And so we just kind of go, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I, I'm, I'm indifferent about it. Again, so, I, so we can fully wrap our brains around this story, right? When we talk about people that are lost, lostness usually plays out like this. The first way it plays out is non-belief. And I wasn't really clear on this last week, and so I want to clear it up today, right? I was trying to go so fast last week. After I finished preaching, I felt like I ran a marathon. So I want to clear this up this week. So non-belief are people that do not know that they're lost. And these would be people that haven't had a chance to hear about Jesus, they haven't sat down and chatted with someone that knows Jesus. They, they've never really experienced what it means to follow Jesus, right? They're unfamiliar with what it means to trust and follow him. There's little connection, and there's little familiarity with what it means to have faith. And let me just say, like, you can look at this and go, like, man, how, how does this even exist? Like, do these, where are these people? Like, we automatically hear about people that have never had the opportunity to hear about Jesus, and we think that they live on an island somewhere in the middle of the ocean, right? And no one's gotten there yet. Here's the thing. A recent study showed that this right here is on the rise and is increasing faster in the United States than ever before, right? There are now more second and third generation non-believers. You know, the way that they would, the way that the kind of Barna Institute refers to them is it refers to them as the nuns, N-O-N-E, right? That they, when they say, like, what's your connection to faith? What's your belief? They say, I have none, none whatsoever. So this is on the rise, like, this is not happening somewhere in an island nation in the middle of the ocean, right? This is happening in our own backyards. That there are people who are now second and third generation non-believers. They've never had an opportunity to experience what it means to trust and follow Jesus. They're completely unfamiliar with it, right? So that is the kind of the first way lostness plays out. And the second way that lostness plays out is unbelief. So non-believers, right, they don't know that they're lost. But unbelievers, unbelief, these are people that don't think they're lost, I'm not lost. I don't need to be sought after. I don't need to be found because I'm not lost. I don't need God because I could be my own God. I don't need to be saved because I don't need saving. And we talked about a group of people that kind of fall in this bucket last week, and those are religious lost people. And religious lost people, they would say this, that my own effort and my own ability and my own status can earn being chosen, me being chosen and saved by God. That my own effort, my own ability, and my own status, I can earn that. I can earn my own salvation. And that's what they do, right? That, that's the thing that, that they do, right? These people are people that reject Jesus. They reject the gospel. They reject being saved by faith alone and instead choose to believe in their own effort and their own ability to save themselves. Again, I just want to be really clear. When we talk about Romans 9, 10, and 11, this is who, people, this is who Paul is talking to. Right? This is kind of the, the crew of people that Paul is engaging with, these religious lost people. And here's why they matter to Paul. It's his own people. It's the Jews, the Israelites. These are the ones that Paul, he cares so much about them, right? The Jewish people, they rejected Jesus because Jesus wasn't who they expected. 
Jesus wasn't what they wanted, right? They wanted someone who would save Israel from Rome, not someone who would save humanity from sin, right? That's kind of the way that they were thinking. So instead of believing in the gospel and hanging on to Jesus with both hands, with one hand, they're hanging on to their own ability to follow God's laws, God's rules, right? Which means doing religion for God instead of being in a relationship with God. And with the other hand, they're hanging under their status as God's chosen people, right? We're the ones he picked. We're the ones he set apart. We're the ones that God chose. God gave us the law, which we must follow perfectly or else. So here's the deal. We're special. You're not. And all we need, all we need to save us is the fact that we're special, right? We don't need Jesus. We don't need the gospel. We're good. We got it. And Paul's heart breaks for these people. His heart breaks for his own people, right? And you got to imagine, it's probably even Paul's own family members. Because Paul, before he had this encounter with Jesus, before he literally bumped into Jesus on a road where he was going to imprison and kill believers in Jesus, right? Paul was brought up as a Pharisee. Paul was brought up as a follower of the law. Paul was, was brought up, who even says when he re refers to himself, you want to know how zealous I was? You want to know how, how into following the law I was? I was so zealous for the law and following the rules that I actually imprisoned, I persecuted the church. I persecuted Jesus. That's how into it. So you have to imagine, Paul's heart's breaking for his own family, his own relatives, people that are close to him. And so, again, just to catch us up, Takeaway number one from last week was this. For the people in our lives, and it doesn't matter if their lostness is rooted in non-belief or unbelief. It doesn't matter where their lostness is. But takeaway number one is this. Our hearts should break for the lost. As believers in Jesus, our hearts should break for the lost. And that heartbreak should lead us to run to them, not away from them. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking? Good. All right. So Paul wasn't about to let this go. Paul wasn't going to let this go. He wasn't going to wash his hands of his own people. He wasn't going to wash his hands. He wasn't going to be indifferent about his own family. He was heartbroken. He was heartbroken about their lostness, and that led him to act. And in acting, he wrote Romans 9, 10, and 11, right? He wanted to share the truth. He wanted to share the truth with a group of religious lost people that thought, we don't need to be saved. And that leads us to takeaway number two from last week, and that's this. We can't save anyone. We can't. You and I can't, and we're going to dive more into this today. We can't save anybody, but what we can do is we can point people that are lost to the truth of who God is. We can point people who are lost to the truth about who God is, his character, his person, his integrity, and all that he's about. That's what we can do. That's what we see Paul do, right? We follow his example. Paul points to God's character. The way that, that we would say this at Adventure, the way you hear us talk about this a lot, is this. It's not our job to save anybody. It's our responsibility to create opportunities for people in Jesus to get in the same room so they can work stuff out. That's kind of our way of saying it here. And that's why you, you hear all the time. We talk about, like, what's our why? Like, what's the main core of the vision of our church? It's to create opportunities for people to come as they are with all of their mess, with all of their questions, with all of their doubt, with all of the junk and brokenness in their life, and become all that God desires them to be, right? But we have to create those opportunities. It's not our job to make them become, right? God does that. But it's our job to create those opportunities. So that's kind of takeaway number two, right? It's basically this. We love God, we love people, and we make disciples. God does the saving. We love radically. That's what we do. We love people radically. We love God radically. And that radical love for God and people, what it does is it allows us to boldly step into 
and create opportunities for people to grow in their relationship with Jesus. So the first part of chapter 9, what we learned, we learned two things. It's this, just kind of sum it up like this. One is how to feel about lost people. We learned how we're supposed to feel about people that are lost. We are to be heartbroken for them and to allow that heartbreak to lead us to action. And the second thing we learned is what to do about it. How do we have gospel conversations? How do we engage people that are going through life without Jesus? We point them to who God is and what he's about. Right? That's the best way to do it. And I think, and as I thought about this this week, a big reason that we don't have gospel conversations, a big reason that we don't have these conversations with the people in our lives that are lost is we're not sure how to feel or what to do about it. Like, how am I supposed to feel about this person? Like, what, what's my attitude? What does my attitude need to be towards this person that's going through life without Jesus? Well, now you know. You should be heartbroken. Well, what am I supposed to do about it? We point to who Jesus is. We tell them about Jesus. We point to the truth of who he is. And Paul's going, listen, I got you. When you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, here's the thing. I can show you, I can tell you how to feel. And I can tell you what to do. And Paul's going, listen, here's the thing. Like, I'm not sure how to feel or what to do. He's like, I got you. And you may be going, you know, I, I, I'm not really sure what to do with this person in my life that's lost because they're really difficult. They're really difficult to talk to. They're argumentative. They, they push back. They think they know everything. And Paul's going, I got you. Right? I can show you what it looks like to have a conversation, a gospel conversation with a difficult person because Paul, it doesn't get, get much more difficult than the people that Paul is talking to in this moment. So Paul, who is heartbroken, what we read in 9, 10, and 11, we see Paul, who is heartbroken, we see the way he acts on his heartbreak for people that are lost. And he points to the truth of who God is and what God's all about. And in this case, right, he's dealing with an extremely difficult group of religious lost people. And what Paul chooses to do is he points to God's sovereignty, this kind of element of God's character. He points to sovereignty. He kind of uses that as his inroad in to have this conversation. And as a means, right, Paul uses God's sovereignty as a means of both sharing the truth in a way that people can hear it, but also showing them that God keeps his promises. And so just so we, again, we can know, we can understand what God's sovereignty is, it's this. It's that God can do whatever he wants, however he wants to do it, and can choose whomever he wants to choose to accomplish it. That's what it is. We talk about God's sovereignty, that's kind of a simple way of, of understanding it. God can do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it, with whoever he wants to do it with, right? And there's a reason that this is so significant. The reason that Paul, he doesn't just randomly choose God's sovereignty as a means of having a difficult conversation with someone that's lost. The reason that Paul chooses God's sovereignty is this. It works directly counter to the two things that they were hanging on to the tightest. It speaks directly counter to the two things they were hanging on to the tightest, which was, again, their ability and their status as a means of saving themselves. And what Paul points them to through sovereignty is this, simple truth. You and I, we're being saved by grace through faith, and that has nothing to do with our status, our ability, or our capability in life. It has every, salvation for you and I has everything to do with God's sovereignty and his perfect character and integrity and the fact that he always keeps his promises. And so today, Paul's going to deal with some pushback. So last week, Paul kind of introduced, right, sovereignty as a means of having a difficult conversation with difficult people. And today, Paul's going to deal with some of their pushback. It says this. You got your Bible in front of you? Romans chapter 9, verse 19. That's where we're starting. So you can open up your Bible or your Bible app. You're going to need that. He says this. One of you will say to me, 
then why does God still blame us? Because if he's sovereign, who's able to resist his will? It's like Paul's getting out ahead of him, right? He understands, like, hey, as I've introduced you to God's sovereignty and the way God's sovereignty works and how that works in our lives and the fact that because God is sovereign, our salvation has nothing to do with our ability. It has everything to do with him keeping his promise forever and always. So I know what you're going to say. All right, well, then if that's the case, then, then why does God still blame us? Because who's able to resist his will? And again, one, I th- one thing I said last week is that what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks is we're going to navigate the tension that exists between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And we're really going to hone in on this today, right? So for years, for years, this debate between God's sovereignty and our responsibility has kind of been seen as an either-or kind of thing. And it plays out like this. Either God is sovereign or people are responsible. It's one or the other. Either God is sovereign or people have some responsibility. And here's, this gets dangerous. When we kind of approach this as an either or, and we try to put God into two buckets, right? We try, to, we try to put him into a corner and go, well, this must be how he works. It gets dangerous because it creates kind of two lines of thinking. And really what it does is it creates two camps of people. Number one are the fatalists, right? Fatalists, they believe that, that events in humanity and history are fixed in advance. So at the end of the day, human beings are powerless to change them. That's what a fatalist believes, right? And then the other camp that this creates is an existentialist, which is this. We were born without purpose into a world that makes no sense, but each person has the ability to create his or her own purpose, sense of meaning, and peace, right? So this is kind of these two ways of thinking, right? Either God is, either God is sovereign and we, everything's on rails, right? Everything's prepared in advance, or... We have the responsibility to come up with our own purpose and meaning because here's, here's that, 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 that's, that's what we have to do, right? And here's why these lines of thinking, here's where kind of these, these two camps and this kind of either-or line of thinking, here's where it interacts with God, right? Thinking this way causes God to be someone that he's not. In fatalism, God essentially becomes a dictator and a puppet master, and he's pulling the strings of everything and everyone, In existentialism, God becomes a disengaged spectator, right, that's kind of sitting in the stands, eating his popcorn, watching everything play out in front of him. And here's the truth, right? So when it comes to God's sovereignty and our responsibility, it's not either or, it's both and. That's how we have to approach this. If we want to stay, if you and I as a church, which we do, if we want to stay faithful to what we read in the Bible, it means we have to affirm two truths. One, that God is sovereign and that people are given responsibility. It's both and, not either or. God is, he is sovereign. God is transcendent. Right? He's not limited to our ways of thinking. He's not limited to our capabilities. We said last week, our incapabilities have zero effect on God's plan and purpose. Our incapabilities have zero effect on God's promises, right? So God is sovereign. He is transcendent. And he is spiritual. Everything is being worked out according to his will and purpose. But here's the thing. He's not a puppet master. And God is not an evil dictator. Well, why? Why, if everything's being worked out to his will and purpose, why and how is he not a puppet master or a dictator? Here's the thing. A dictator is authority without relationship. 
Being a dictator is being in charge and having no relationship. That's not who God is. God is in charge and desires relationship. And the difference there is, is it's the difference between being a dictator and being a father. Father is, I'm, I'm in charge, but I desire a relationship and I love you, right? God is, he is all powerful. But here's the thing, he is also relational. And he is also personal. And he is also physical. I mean, Jesus was God with skin on. Jesus was God that we could wrap our arms around. Jesus was God that we could touch and feel and hear and be with. So to, to call God or to think that God is a disengaged spectator is crazy. He is involved. He's involved in our lives. He steps into the mess, and he stepped into the mess when he put skin on and lived with us and died for us. And today he steps into the mess by putting his spirit into those of us that choose to believe in him. He steps into that mess, and he moves in, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He moves in and begins that renovation process, right? He begins to remove the junk. He begins to remove the things that get in the way of our relationship. That's who he is. He steps into that mess. He gets involved. He steps into the mess. He puts his spirit within us to renovate us, to empower us, to equip us, to carry the gospel movement that he began. God is sovereign. God's sovereign, and his will and desire will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today, I want to be clear that that desire and will includes us being given responsibility and purpose. And here's our responsibility and purpose, to love God, love people, and make disciples. He gives us that responsibility and purpose. Your life is not meaningless. Your life is not purposeless. You're not, as a believer in Jesus, you are not out there searching and looking at, the, at this, the, the rainbows and the clouds and the stars, trying to figure it out. Well, you know, that, that cloud kind of looked like my neighbor, so maybe I should go talk to him, right? Like, no, like, he's going, listen, you've got a purpose. Your purpose is to love me, love people, and make disciples. See, we take a fatalistic approach, and we say this, it's like, I, it doesn't matter what I do. I can do everything or I can just sit and do nothing and things are going to happen the way they're going to happen with or without me. So I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to engage. On the other end of the spectrum, we can take an existential approach which says I'm born without purpose, so I guess I'll just have to figure this out on my own. And see, here's the thing. These approaches, being a fatalist and saying I've got no responsibility. I have no responsibility. Things are going to play out the way they're going to play out. I'm not going to get involved. Being an existentialist and going, I think I need to find my own purpose, and I'll find it in my own ways. Here's the thing. They both, taking either one of those approaches, they both cop out of our responsibility and live in the with God life. And that responsibility is to love God, love people, and make disciples. And let me just tell you this. There's good news. Let me just tell you the good news in God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty actually simplifies our responsibility. And here's why. Because God is sovereign, you and I, we do not have to take full responsibility for, for securing our own salvation or anyone else's. We don't have to take that responsibility on. God, see, here's the thing that happens, and hang with me on this, right? God chose to make the opportunity of salvation in Jesus through faith alone, by grace alone. He chose to make that available to the whole world, right? God issues a call to repent and believe to all of humanity through Jesus. When we talk about repent, right, it means to change direction. God offers the call to humanity to say, listen, you don't have, your life does not have to go down this path. 
You can change direction with your life, and you can believe. You can believe in my saving power through Jesus. God takes that responsibility. He issues that call. And he does that knowing that some will choose to answer, and some never will. And that's different than us. See, typically the way we work is when we offer something, we offer something to someone with a pretty good, you know, understanding or guarantee that they're going to accept the offer. And if we think for a second, if we doubt for a second that, I don't know, I'm going to offer this to someone, I don't think they're going to take it. What happens? We don't offer it. God issues a call. Issues a call to all of humanity. That salvation is available through faith alone, in Jesus alone, by grace alone. He issues that call knowing that some people will never answer. They'll never respond. God takes full responsibility for securing the salvation of people that choose to accept the responsibility, right, to answer the call of the Holy Spirit. He takes that responsibility to personally change the direction of our lives through faith and by receiving his grace, right? We said last week, Here's the deal. When you choose God, when you choose to believe in the gospel, when you choose to trust and put your life in Jesus' hands, right, at the same time that we choose that, we also have to recognize that he chooses us. We are chosen. We've been called to repent and believe. And when we choose to answer that call and say, yes, I will believe, we have to recognize that, yes, we are choosing, but also we are chosen at the same time. You and I, we are chosen by God. And he takes responsibility for our salvation. But God also takes full responsibility for the fate and the destiny of the people that reject the responsibility of answering his call. And when they reject the responsibility of answering his call, they reject him. And because of that, one day they will face rejection from him. And again, we say, well, that's harsh. I don't know that I like this. I kind of like the lovey-dovey God. I, I like the God that's all about forgiveness and grace and just giving me a big hug. I, don't, I, I like that. I don't know that I like this idea of like the, that the people that reject him will, will also be rejected by him. I don't, I don't dig that. But here's the thing. And we said this last week. We said this before. You can't desire perfect grace and want also imperfect justice. You can't have both. If we want perfect grace, we also have to have perfect justice. We, it, it doesn't work for God to go, you know what, listen, here's the I'll change my mind and let everybody off the hook. Right? I know you rejected me forever, forever, forever. Every time I called you, every time, every time I issued that call, I know you said no, but it's, you know, so we can't, like, here's the deal. You cannot have perfect grace without also having perfect justice. And God takes that responsibility. God says, that's mine. I mean, can you imagine? Just imagine with me. Imagine what your salvation or someone else's salvation would feel like if all of that weight was on your shoulders. Imagine what it would feel like if you had to save yourself. Imagine what it would feel like if you had to save somebody else. You know, like you make it into heaven. You get into heaven. You're the one that made it, right? You're some of the, the few that made it. And you get into heaven and you say, listen, where's my friend? Well, I don't see my friend anywhere. I guess they didn't make it into heaven. They never chose to believe. They chose to reject Jesus. What would it be like if Jesus in that moment approaches you and says, well, maybe you should have tried harder. Maybe you should have done better. You know, you, you blew it. It's your fault. Here's the truth. You and I, we are not big enough or strong enough to carry the weight of anyone's eternity, including our own. But God is. 
And that's why he takes full responsibility for it. And sovereignty is how he does that. I love this in John 6. Jesus says this. Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me, get this, will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, don't miss this, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those that the Father has given me, but that I will raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him, in me, shall have eternal life. And I'll raise them up on the last day. See, we don't like this tension between sovereignty and responsibility, but Jesus was totally capable of handling this responsibility for eternity of all humanity. And he knew it. Jesus was okay living in that tension. And see, some people, we don't like the, the, this idea of sovereignty because we think, well, well, what if someone, what if someone wants mercy and grace from God, but they don't get it because they're not chosen? What if someone wants, like, they want grace and mercy from God, They want to be in a relationship with God, but they're not getting it because they're not chosen. Can I just make this really clear today? If you look back on what Jesus just said in those few verses, you can see now there is no such thing as that person. There's no such thing as that person. Every person, Jesus says this, every person that desires and seeks grace and compassion and mercy from God through Jesus, through faith, gets it. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Jesus says, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes, everyone who looks to me and believes in me shall have eternal life. Jesus knew how things would unfold because he's sovereign. But Jesus is also okay with living in the tension that some will choose and be chosen by him and some won't. And that's really what we have to do. We have to do the same thing. We have to be comfortable living in this tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Because here's the thing. We're not going to solve the question. This is one of those those moments where, like, when I get to heaven, I really hope there's a QA and a room, right, with, like, video screens and a DVR so I can rewind and actually see things, right? This is one of those moments where, hey, God, you you got to help me make sense of this. you you got to show me how this all works together, Right? And I also want to go back and see, like, the ark and all that kind of stuff, too, right? That's cool. But this whole sovereignty responsibility thing, like, help me understand what this looks like. Here's the, we're, not going to resolve, we're not going to solve the question. We're not going to resolve the tension that exists between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. But here's what we can do. We can learn to live with it and learn to live in it. And here's how we do that. We recognize he's God. We're not. He's God. I'm not. You're not. And here's what we know based on his word. He seeks and saves anyone who seeks him. And here's what we know. We know that he'll deal with those that reject him. And that's his responsibility. And he accepts that responsibility. And it's not my responsibility. So just really simply, here's what our responsibility looks like in God's sovereignty. Our responsibility is to share the gospel with our lives and with our lips. It's to share the gospel with the way that we live. When people look at your life, 
and they see the way you work, they see the way you care for your family, they see the way you care for your friends, they, when they look at your life, that your life looks different. We share the gospel with our lives, but we also share the gospel with our lips. We are there to share the story of Jesus. We're there to share our own personal testimony, the, the, the way that we bumped into Jesus and he saved our We're there to point people to the truth, just like Paul did. I'm going to point you to the truth of who God is. I'm going to get you and Jesus in the same room and let you start to work things out. And Paul goes on in this argument. He says, you know, here's the thing. Some of you may say this, but, but who, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? And he says this, show what is formed, say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Like, what does he mean? Like, what is, what's he getting at? Let me just ask you this, all right? You probably have been in a situation like this where you've had, if, just think about this, okay? Have you ever been in a situation where you had a conversation with someone and maybe they're bringing some questions or maybe they're bringing some criticism or maybe they're bringing some ideas, right? Hey, here's some things, here's some thoughts of, I've got on this, that, or the other. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone like that who it's very clear from the get-go they lack any perspective and any understanding about who you are and what you do? You ever been in those? I know it's not just me as a pastor, right? Those have, they're, they're a regular occurrence, right? I used to, in student ministry, I would have parents ask me, like, what, like tell me about what you do. And I would say, well, I'm a youth pastor, and, and this is kind of what it looks like, and, and this is, you know, the church I work for, and this is kind of what, what, we, what we do in, in youth ministry. And at the, inevitably, this would happen, and this happened all the time. They would go, like, all right, so what's your real job? <laughs> um, and those moments, you're just like, it's like, this is my real job. Like, full-time? Yeah, like 40 hours a week, more like 80, but who's counting, right? It was amazing, right? And we have these moments where it's really clear that people are coming to us for whatever reason, with whatever motivation, with good intentions, but it's really abundantly clear that they have no perspective or no understanding, right? That's kind of what Paul's getting at here. And I love the way that he brings this kind of concept of our perspective and our understanding as it relates to God into this conversation by using this kind of potter clay illustration. And imagine this, right? Imagine you were sitting down to make like a piece of pottery. And as you tried to make like a bowl or a vase, which is all I could make when I was in like art class, I, I did a bowl and a ball. That was it, right? Teacher's like, hey, do you want to make something other than just a ball? I'm like, nope, that's it. It's all I can make right? So just imagine that you sit down to make a bowl or a vase or whatever it is, and the clay, as you sit down to work with the clay, says, I don't think you know what you're doing. I can do better. I know you want to make me into a bowl, but I don't want to be a bowl. I want to be something else. And the clay starts to fight against you, right? It starts to try to make itself into something different. That's kind of what we're talking about here, right? In the same way, there are times that we look at God and we say, God, you're doing this wrong. God, I think I can do better than you. Hey, God, I know you've got your plan. I know your plan is sovereign. I know you're working out your will, and your will is to seek and save people that are lost. But here's the thing. Like, I don't like the way you're doing this, and I think I can do it better, so why don't you hop on board with my plan? And what we're doing is we're coming at God with our thoughts and opinions and our criticism with absolutely no perspective or understanding of what it means to be him. And here's, what, here's the deal. I want to make this really clear too. Paul is not saying don't ask God questions. 
Can I just say this? And a lot of churches, maybe you, you've, you've grown up with this, so maybe thinking, I'm not allowed to ask God any questions. I'm not allowed to doubt. I'm not allowed to struggle with this stuff. I just need to kind of accept it, right? Here's the thing. You're allowed to ask God questions. It is totally okay to ask God questions. If you want to know how God responds to questions, look at Jesus. Jesus loves questions and loves to have conversations. But let me just say this. There is a difference in the way we ask questions. One way of asking questions of God is to seek answers in truth, and the other way of asking questions of God is to interrogate him. God, where were you? Because here's the thing. The reason we interrogate God, the reason we want to put him under the lights is because we don't like what he's doing and we think we can do better. And can I just tell you that in God's will and in God's sovereignty, and some of you may like, there's an abundance of pain in my life. How in the world is God sovereign or is he good? Because all I do is hurt my relationships hurt, my body hurts, I'm sick, whatever it may be. I'm dealing with addictions, I'm dealing with struggles, sin struggles. Can I just say God in his sovereignty takes painful stuff and uses it. Takes things, takes moments when people in our lives hurt us and they should never have done that, he's still able to use it. If you look back at some examples, Joseph. Joseph's brothers should not have beaten him up and thrown, thrown him in a pit and sold him into slavery. They shouldn't have done that. But you know what God did? Used it used it to the point where Joseph became the number two guy in charge of Egypt. Joseph became a guy who told Pharaoh through dreams how to stockpile food because there's a famine coming. And at one, and at one point, the whole earth is going to come here looking for food and we'll be able to give it to him. And then when Joseph comes face to face with his brothers who beat him up, threw him in a pit, and sold him into slavery, what does he say? You meant to hurt me, but God used it for good, the saving of many lives. You look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh, and this is the thing. I used to think of the ten plagues as kind of ten times that God bows up on Pharaoh. It's like, watch what I can do. They were really ten chances for Pharaoh to change his mind. They were ten offerings of mercy. It was ten times God said, listen, I'm coming back to you again going, Pharaoh, change your mind, soften your heart. Change your mind, soften your heart. Ten times God gave him a chance, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And what happens when Pharaoh hardens his heart? God still leads his people out of captivity. God's able to deal with hard-hearted people that want to hurt us. And the thing, the cool thing at the end of all of these stories is God saves lives in spite of hard-hearted people, right? You look at Judas. Judas should not have betrayed Jesus. Bad move, Judas, right? That's why nobody names their kid Judas. There's all kinds of, like, biblical names. Have you ever met a Judas? Nope. Right? It's bad. That's a bad omen, right? So... He should have done that. We can look at it and go, Judas, bad move, dude. But here's what, here's what happened. In spite of that bad move, what happened? Jesus saved everyone. God works. N.T. Wright says this. God works even within human rebellion and arrogance to bring about an even more glorious work of rescue, revealing his power and gaining a worldwide reputation of performing extraordinary acts of judgment and mercy. And Paul, he goes on to explain, he says, what if God, what if God, as he's working out his plan, is choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, but he's doing it with great patience. He's taking the objects of his wrath that are prepared for destruction, but he's giving them as many chances as they can, right? Like, that's really what God does. I'm going to give you as many chances as you can. And I know you're going to reject me, but that's not going to stop me from pursuing you. 
Paul goes on and says, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called not only from the Jews but from the Gentiles, right? Here's the thing we get from this, that, that he's not only giving, right? He's not only giving those who are destined to reject him every chance, but he's giving us who accept him every chance, right? For those of us that have said yes to Jesus, we've accepted the responsibility, right, to say yes to Jesus. We are learning what it means to accept the responsibility to love God and love people and make disciples. Every single day is God's patience with us to become more and more like Jesus and to get more people in the same room with him. And then Paul, he quotes the Old Testament because, again, the Jewish people that he was talking to, they would have known these scriptures. He speaks their language. He says, as it says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. God's sovereignty with his sovereign plan and his sovereign perspective and his character and his integrity can do this. We are not to disqualify anyone. That's what God says. We're not to disqualify anyone. I can call anyone I want my person. I can call anyone I want my loved one. Don't you dare disqualify them. Don't you put words in my mouth. Isaiah says this. It says, cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites be like sand in the sea, only a small amount will be saved. God understands not everybody is going to choose to trust Jesus. Not everyone is going to choose to be chosen by Jesus. And he closes out this section by saying, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth with speed and finality. That's God's sovereign power at work. Just as, it said, as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would become like Sodom and we've been like Gomorrah. God is not going to wipe us out. He makes that promise. I will never wipe humanity off the face of the earth again. Not all is lost. Some will be saved. But not everyone. And here's where we're going to stop today, okay? All of humanity... All of humanity has been created by God, right? So don't confuse his sovereignty with his lack of love or lack of care for those that he's created. In fact, in Ezekiel 33, he says this, As surely as I live, declares what kind of Lord? The sovereign Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn, he says, from your evil ways. God doesn't look in his sovereignty at the people that he knows are going to reject him and go, good for you. I'm happy about it. God is not happy about sending anyone to hell. But it's still going to happen. God's not happy about it. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. So for us, choosing to answer his call is the difference in being God's creation and God's child. If you want to know what your responsibility is in this kingdom, in his kingdom, we are all given the responsibility to choose to answer God's call to believe in the gospel. And some will accept that call and some will not. Every day, every single day, for someone who is living the without God life, doing life without Jesus, every single day that they have on this earth is another day of patience from God to those who right now think, I don't need him. It's one more day of patience. It's also one more day for you and I who've accepted the responsibility to answer his call, who accept his kingdom responsibility to love him, love people, and make disciples. It's one more day for us to run to the lost and not away from them. 
every day in the with God life for believers is God's patience to mold us and shape us to become more like Jesus. Every day in the with God life is our, is our opportunity to become more moldable, to trust him. Even when we push back, and there's moments that I do this, I push back against God and I say, listen, God, I think I can do your job better than you. Every single day for those of us who are believers is a chance for him to soften our hearts, for us to become more moldable, for us to become more shapeable, for us to, to have hearts for those that are lost, to take on the responsibility to share the gospel with our lives and with our lips. And we're going to talk more about what that looks like next week. So we're going to stop here to be continued. Next week, we'll wrap this up. And I'm going to pray for us. And today, if you've never had the opportunity to say yes to Jesus, if you've never had the opportunity to encounter the gospel, I would love to have a conversation with you. What it means like to step into the with God life through Jesus alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. If you want to be a part of our church, if you want to know what it looks like to be a part of this community of people that are messy and broken and just trying to figure out how to do life, love to chat with you about that. If you need prayer today, I would love to pray with you. I'll be down front during this next worship song. So let's pray. Stand up. First off, let's stand up and let's pray together. And here's what I would ask you to do. I would ask you just to extend your hands and hold your palms up, right? Because this is a posture of receiving. And this posture of receiving for us today, it means that we recognize that every single day we need to receive grace and mercy. And every single day for those of us that believe in Jesus, God makes it available. So today, if you need to receive grace and mercy in this time of prayer, just ask for it. Today, if you recognize that I've got a hard heart towards people in my family or my life that are lost and I just need to receive God's hand on my heart to break up that heart of stone and to be given a heart of flesh, to be given some direction and purpose, to accept that responsibility, just hold your hands out. Say, God, I'm ready for that responsibility. Come in, shape me, mold me, do what you're gonna do with me. And he, he shows up. Receive that today. Today, if you've never received the gospel, if you've never received Jesus in your hands with your palms open, receive that today. Because he's available and he's here. And he's ready to save you. He does not reject anyone that seeks him. Let's pray together. Let's keep our palms out and let's pray together. Jesus, today, we receive your truth. We receive your grace. We want to receive your mercy. We want to receive the fact that you make life different. We want to receive the fact that you are the only place where we can find forgiveness from shame and guilt and regret. We can find forgiveness of our past, of our present, of our future. We find life in you, Jesus, and we want to receive that today. Jesus, would you meet us where we are? Jesus, would you give us a heart for people that are lost? Jesus, would you put names and faces in our brains so we go, this is the person to talk to. Father, would you give us your spirit so that we can accept the responsibility to love you, to love people, to make disciples. Father, would you give us the courage, we want to receive the courage to share the gospel with our lives and with our lips. And it is in your almighty and all-powerful name that we pray as a church. Amen.